Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome again to the program. They now look at the church and go, we're done for. So that whenever the church reaches out with the love and the grace and the message of Christ's forgiveness, it is an assault on the forces of darkness. Have you ever worked for a big company like a global corporation? Being part of something that has an impact across the globe would be quite exciting, don't you think? Just before Jesus' death, he spoke to his disciples on Mount Hermon and declared that his followers would be the church. He gave the church a directive, which we know as the Great Commission. If you're a believer, you are part of the church globally and a critical part of the directive that Jesus gave. How exciting is that? Dr. Corbett is continuing in a series titled The Eight Greatest Stories in the Bible. Let's join him tonight for the true story of the world's first global corporation. uh, raised up down the track a king by the name of David. We've also seen how from that king came the Messiah, the Christ. And his name that was given to him was the name Saviour, which is Jesus, Yesus, Jesus. And we've seen how Jesus came and fulfilled all the prophecies of the prophets, how he paid the price for mankind's sin and rebellion and wickedness and shame and how that song by John Newton, where there's that line, he saved a wretch like me, makes sense because... Compared to God's ultimate standard of goodness, we are all wretches. And how God sent his son to pay the price that we could become his sons and daughters too. And today we're going to have a look at what happens next in the story. It's amazing how in the Bible itself, it actually has a number of retellings of that story that I've just told you. Psalm 105, Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is being uh, taken out and accused of claiming that the temple would be destroyed. And he's asked, is this true? Which was the equivalent of uh, sacrilege to claim that. It was actually what Jesus had said would happen. And Stephen uses that opportunity not to defend himself, but to defend the truth, which is an interesting way of approaching it. He actually gives... A defense of the story, the whole story that I've just told you as well. And so now I want us to consider what I looked at when I I mentioned about Christ. I mentioned also that there's two beginnings mentioned in the Bible. There's the in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's Genesis 1:1. Then there's another beginning that's mentioned in the Bible, and that's John 1:1. And that beginning in John 1:1 goes back before Genesis 1-1. And that's where we see God created a family in heaven. And I wrote about that this week in the past, this week's E-News Pastor's Desk. Where God created a family of what we might call heavenly creatures. And we kind of lump them all together with this word angels. And we see that God created four magnificently powerful creatures called cherubim and these four creatures says are in a a a thing that is like a field of strength and energy around them that ezekiel in ezekiel chapters one and two described as a wheel but he says not like a wheel i've seen before because it was a wheel 
within a wheel. In other words, it was all around them. And it was in there that they moved. And God created these incredibly magnificent creatures, cherubim, to be in his presence. And everywhere God goes, these cherubim go, so that when God came down in the cool of the day to inspect on Adam and who became Eve, we see that when he found that they had rebelled against him, immediately he could, he could have a cherub just guard the east gate as they were sent out. The cherub was there with God. So if you've got a picture of a Valentine's Day card, and you've probably got a few of those, Jake, I'm guessing. Yeah, you'd have a few. You may see that Hallmark depicts cherubs as little bare-bottom babies with wings, and they have these little cute arrows. Uh, think warrior. Think awesome, intimidating, scare the living daylights out of you. Think your feet were once dry, now you've just seen them, now your feet are wet type moment. You may need to talk to the person beside you and go, what? They'll explain it to you. Because these creatures are magnificently big. I keep wanting, I'm tempted to use the word gargantuan. They, they have four faces that, that are like one face, but it's four distinct faces. And it's, it, would have, it would have been incredible to see them. And we see that then God created the next tier of heavenly creatures called seraphim who lead heaven in worship. And these guys would have been much bigger than the cherubim. And then we see God created ark angels. Ark, Greek word for ruler, ruling angels. Then God created these other creatures called the watchers, who it appears God had created with the purpose that, that down the track, he would create us, mankind. And that mankind would be helped by these heavenly creatures called the watchers. And then God created what the Bible calls the hosts, who are described in Revelation chapter 5 as myriads upon myriads of angels, the hosts. And he's called the Lord of hosts. And so we have his heavenly family. He calls the watchers his sons because they would be the ones who would have closest interaction with mankind. And there was something in the heart of God where he knew he was going to create mankind. He was going to create mankind. And there is a high probability that one of these watchers had the name Lucifer. And that when God created Adam, the watchers were there watching, ready to do what the Almighty God had created them to do, which would be to help mankind. And we read in Daniel chapter 4 that the watchers were given authority by God to sometimes execute judgment on people who were in themselves rebellious. So we have this, this amazing spiritual realm and we see that when God created Adam, nothing changed as far as their attitude. But the moment God created woman, one of these watchers, and I'm going to suggest to you it was Lucifer, became enraged with jealousy. It appears that his pride was so deeply hurt when God created woman because she could do what no creature in the universe up until that point had been able to do. Not the seraphim, not the cherubim, not the archangels, none of the watchers and none of the mighty host of heaven could do what God 
had invested into this woman. And that was something that only God himself could do. She was given the power to create spirit. Every time a child is born, spiritual substance is added to the universe. It's not the same as our physical substance. Every time a baby is born, not one, not one atom, not one molecule, not one proton is added to the universe. It's just using what's already here. But when a child is born, there is new spiritual substance. And it appears at that point, Lucifer was out to get the woman. These creatures, it appears, had the ability to shapeshift. He shapeshifted as a serpent. He came into the garden. He wasn't interested in Adam. He went straight to the woman. And we read that when he was able to deceive the woman, that God came and spoke and said, there would be enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. All your days, all her days. And we follow an interesting storyline through scripture where Satan's target is nearly always women. It's little wonder today why women get hurt so frequently and so often when men don't. Because Satan hates women. He hates what they can do. He deceives them still by thinking an abortion is just a matter of convenience. When in fact, it's his strategy of evil and wickedness against women and the power that they have. So I want to look at this next installment by, I guess, reminding you that the Bible story alludes to a universe that is the, the seen and unseen realm that is comprised of a natural realm and a supernatural realm. We interact between both and most of us aren't even aware of it. The natural realm is comprised of matter. We're all familiar with that matter. You find it on the elementary table. I don't know how many numbers there are on the elementary table. Do anyone know what it goes up to? 112? Are you sure? They haven't added some in the last few months? They probably have. And that's right, they probably have. We are discovering elements in our world all the time. So when I went to school, the elementary table was about six. Now it's 112 plus. I've got the elementary table and a poster on my wall and I'm looking at those, some of those last ones that have been discovered and I'm going, who the heck discovered that? And what's, what is that anyway? The tiny, tiny, often sub-atomic sub particles that make up these things, they're, they're elements. Okay, so we're familiar with that. It's the stuff that we can touch, generally. Or it's a gas that we are aware is there and maybe we can't see it, probably can't even feel it. But the supernatural realm, this is what I want to get across to you. The supernatural realm is not like a ghostly realm where, you know, if, if, a, go, if, if a spirit was there, you could just put your hand through it and you wouldn't feel anything because it's, it's not made of the material substance that comprises this universe. But I want you to understand that the Bible actually describes these creatures as very real, oftentimes able to materialise and do things that are extraordinary in our material world. For example, when the women in Matthew chapter 28 went to put herbs and spices on the body of Jesus, why would they be going to do that? 
because he'd been dead three days and by this time he would have had an odour and they are going to put herbs in. But then they, they get, they're getting near to the tomb and they're going, hang on a minute, how are we going to get in? How are we going to get in? There's this slight problem of three-tonne rock in front of the tomb, which would have been sealed with wax and probably had a chain and pieces through it holding it in place. How are we going to get in? And to their surprise, they turn up. Remember what happened? Maybe you've read this and skipped. Oh, yeah, an angel threw the stone away. Oh, yeah, whatever. And hang on a minute. We're talking a multi-ton piece of rock. It's called a stone. A stone in front of this tomb. And an angel, an angel came, it says, and rolled it away. So don't think ghost in the sense of can't physically do anything. That's... We don't get it. These, these creatures, these people in this realm are made of stuff that is not in our elementary table. Now life within this realm, life within this realm, consists of life forms which are subject to the laws of decay. I'm an example of that. Here's an example I prepared earlier. <laughs> I'm decaying. <laughs> um... It's funny now. No, it's not funny, darling. But um, Kim will often go to Ruby in the shop. What, are the, what does that say? <laughs> because I'm told that you get to a certain age and your eyesight decays a bit. Not that Kim's reached that age. It must just have been a bad day. But anyway, so... This is what happens in this realm. We decay, we decay. And the Bible actually talks about the law of decay. It says it in Romans 8.21, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay or the law of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. So the Bible says this realm is subject to the law of decay. And that's when, if you're into Latin, and I'm sure we're all into Latin, that this word mortal comes into play. And it's from the Latin word mort, which means death. So the next time you go to your bank for a mortgage, that's where the word comes from, right? Mortgage means death grip. Well, you laugh when interest rates are what they are now, but there was a time when they weren't this. 21%, exactly. Well, that's what my grandparents told me too. I don't remember it myself, but anyway. So this realm is comprised of mortal living things. All living things here are mortal. They have, they have a decay law that's working on them. While the life within the supernatural realm, or should I say the unseen realm, and I'm unsure how to describe it, but I hope you get my drift, in the realm that is more real, more real than this physical realm, yet we don't see it. That's, that's the only difference. Life there is not subject to the law of decay. Therefore, life in that realm is what's called immortal. Now, here's the difference between immortal and eternal. Eternal has no beginning, not subject to the laws of decay, therefore will have no end. Immortal had a beginning, but is not subject to the laws of decay. So heavenly creatures are immortal. And in one sense... When you accept Christ into your life, not, not even in some sense, in a real sense, we all become what we actually are. There is a part of us that belongs in the spiritual realm. It's a vital part of us. And that is immortal. 
It's immortal. Your soul is immortal. It's not subject to the laws of decay, particularly when you're in Christ. Now, within the supernatural realm, there are beings whom God created to assist his image bearers. I've just introduced them to you. We generally lump all of these creatures together and call them angels. And the Bible does as well. They possess superhuman strength. These angelic creatures have also been created with certain abilities. One of them is the ability to enter into this realm. In a moment, I'm going to show you that there's a particular place where God says, this is where you enter, which is odd to me. And they have the ability to materialise. There have been often times when angelic visitors have materialised to people and people have thought they were actually just people. This is the record of scripture. So we, th- this is what we read in, in Genesis chapter 28 verse 12. I said that there's a particular place where God has designated this is where angels enter into this realm. Jacob went to sleep in a place called Luz. And as he dreamt, and this is the other thing, angels have the ability to communicate, which I'll I'll make that point in a moment. And oftentimes, they will communicate by entering into our dreams. Isn't that weird? But since you know it now, how might that cause you to pray for people who do not yet know Christ? Interesting how often God communicated with people who did not know him by dreams. Angels have a capacity to enter into dreams with people. For example, and he, Jacob, dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Now, this is, boy, this is one of the questions I'm going to want to explore when I get to heaven and find out what was going on here. But here's the biblical data. They entered into this part of earth via this place where Jacob had put his head down to sleep. The text goes on in Genesis chapter 28, verse 17. And he was afraid, Jacob, and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Amazing. So these angelic creatures were created with the ability to communicate with people in various ways. They could talk to them. They, we, we have the examples in Daniel chapter 10 where uh, the angel Gabriel spoke directly with Daniel so he could speak. Presumably at that time it would have been Aramaic and Daniel understood and could talk back to him. So that, that's pretty amazing. I'm pretty sure angelic creatures have the capacity to speak any language, which, man, That would be an awesome thing. But here's an example in Matthew chapter 1 where again an angel came into a man's dreams and communicated with him. Oftentimes you might appreciate women when you ask a man who might be in your life, what are you thinking about? The answer, which often surprises women, is nothing. And women go, oh, don't be ridiculous. No, he's not being ridiculous. It is possible for a man to be completely and utterly thoughtless. (laughs) Put it to the test. Scientifically verifiable. And here we have 
Joseph, who doesn't know what to do now that he's found out that Mary is pregnant. But as he was considering these things, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the angel speaks to him and tells him, you are to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's what the name Jesus means, Jesus Jesus, the Saviour. So let's come back to Genesis 28. That place where Jacob saw what he describes as a ladder, and I find the biblical language is sometimes the best they can do. So Ezekiel describes it as a wheel in a wheel because he didn't have the word force field in his vocabulary. He'd never seen a science fiction movie. So he just said it looked like a wheel in a wheel. Which even if you think about it for his day, I don't think he'd ever seen that either. And here Jacob is seeing angels coming up and coming down and he's going, must be a ladder there or something. And so he describes this as a a ladder. And, And so he calls this place the house of God. So in Hebrew, the word house is Beth. In Hebrew, the word God is El. So he calls it Beth El, house of God. By the way, Jesus was born in Beth Lechem. Lechem is bread, the house of bread. And Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And so while Bethel is described as the gate of heaven, there's another place where God had said to the watchers, not the ordinary angels, the watchers, this is where you come down. Which again, I find odd. Why, why, there, why not just anywhere? I don't, I don't get it, I, but I can see it's there. I'm, and this was Mount Hermon, and it was considered the gate that became the gate for evil forces to enter because a bunch of these watchers sided with Satan voluntarily and did all kinds of nasty things, and it says that they were not permitted to come down at Bethel. They had to come down at Mount Hermon. Now, curiously, Mount Hermon, which is known in the other language by the Amorites as Syrian, there's an entire psalm. Psalm 29 is about Syrian or Mount Hermon, where the psalmist declares God is greater than Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon must submit to God. And you think, What's the big deal about telling us that? And it's because this became known as a demonic stronghold, a place where evilness resided. It also became a place where idols were set up all around this mountain. It became a place where child sacrifice happened. It became a place that became a whole, a, pff, holy, a, a, not holy at all, but a site where they worshipped the Baal, the Baal, the which they, Baal is a, a word for Lord. So they, they develop new lords, new gods, which are really demon gods. So we see in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, the significance of Mount Hermon. So we took the land, Joshua says, or sorry, Moses is saying. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan and the valley of Arnon, to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Senur, 
So this is really fascinating that the northernmost border of Israel was Mount Hermon. And on Mount Hermon, they knew it to be a place of intense spiritual activity and not much of it very good. In fact, Mount Hermon became considered the seat of the demon god Baal and became a site for some of the most vile idolatry. So when the Old Testament talks about going up to the high places, Mount Hermon is some nine and a half thousand feet high. It's huge. It has snow on it all year round. From the top of Mount Hermon, you can see down to the Dead Sea, 28 miles away. From the Dead Sea, you can see Mount Hermon. It's huge. It gives you the best vantage point of Israel, right on that border. Above the snow line of Mount Hermon, nothing grows. There's no soil there. Nothing grows. And this is a consistent biblical picture of what evil does. It leads to barrenness. It describes wastelands as being the place of Satan and evil demons. And Mount Hermon became a picture of a rocky barrenness. It's just rocks. And the rocks are huge. And they, they carved idols into it. And in fact, they, there's, a, there's a cave you can go to now. It's called the, um, the, what is it? the Grotto of Pan. The Cave of Pan that's there which was a place where some of this demonic worship happened. So at the foot of Mount Hermon, there was a largely Gentile town, Caesarea Philippi. Now, if you know your chronology of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the Gospels, you see that just before Jesus went to Jerusalem to die, he goes to Mount Hermon. What the heck? Everyone knew this is the centre of wickedness and evil. Everyone knew this is where some of the most vile sin took place. Everyone knew this is not where our people are, Jesus. These are Gentile people who do all kinds of wickedness on Mount Hermon. They go up to the high places and they sacrifice babies and they do horrible things. Why would you go there? Hmm. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went, on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, now why would he pick this moment to ask this question? Let, let's put the question the way he put it. Who do people say that I am? Now, of course, this is followed up by another question we read in Matthew, but who do you think I am? Or who do you say I am? Because if the answer was the Messiah... The question still remains, what are we doing here? Why did you come to the most wicked, vile, disgusting place on the planet to have this discussion? Oh, when it gets better. Chapter 8, verse 31. When Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, there is an enormous weight in that. In other words, he has just said, You're, we, we, we got this figured out now. You're not just the Messiah. You're God in the flesh. You created the whole deal. It's yours. Now, it's interesting, as they get closer to Mount Hermon, Jesus then has Simon Peter say, but you shouldn't go and die. And what does Jesus say to Satan as they approach this demon-infested part of planet Earth? Depart from me. Who? Satan, he says to Simon Peter. Intriguing. 
Absolutely intriguing. And if you go back in the Deuteronomy account, you, you read that the king of that area was part of the Rephaim, nine cubits tall. Yes, thank you. Now, you, you've got to appreciate, if someone's nine cubits tall, something's going on here. And what was going on was exactly what was described in Genesis chapter 6, that the watchers, who were known as the sons of God, had shape-shifted into human form and sired children with women. And the offspring were the Nephilim, the giants of old. They were not human. They were not angelic. They were a half-breed people. And we read of the, the king there, who was a part of this as well, right up until the time of this. This is, this is just kind of, what? This is amazing. Here's, a, here's, here's something that we see. This is tourists at Mount Hermon. They go and do the tour. You see the rocks? And that, that just gets rockier as you go up. No vegetation at all. It's just snow. So here we have this, this incredible rock known as the, this place of evil. And it's just rock. And Jesus takes Peter, James and John up higher than this point. It's amazing. Why there? Why would you go there? He takes them up the mountain. It says this, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. The most amazing scene in the New Testament recorded in Matthew chapter 17, it's recorded in Mark chapter 9, is when Jesus, just before he is about to die, he goes up Mount Hermon and Moses and Elijah appear to him and he is transfigured. In other words, the glory that he always had from the foundation of the world suddenly is just back on him for this moment. And light is emanating out of him. There is, an, there is what we might call a power encounter happening right now in this moment. Notice how Matthew renders this time in the Gospels. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, as he's standing up aloft on top of Mount Hermon, on this rock, I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Catholics think that he was talking to Peter. You're the rock. Petros means stone. He calls him Petra, I believe, which is a female word. So it's like oh, something's going on here with the language of Christ. But get this. Jesus has just walked into a place that the Jews called the gates of hell. It was that evil. You go there today, you can do a tourist thing, and they'll tell you that. They'll say, this is what we used to call the gates of hell. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. In other words, in the midst of incredible evil, incredible darkness, and the, the worst that evil can do, I'm going to build my church. The church is designed not to run from evil, not to run away from evil, not to hide from evil, but to run into it and be the light of Christ, he's saying. I'll build my church in the midst of this. So the next time you think, oh, the devil's having a go, the devil, we're not the ones to be scared in this scenario. Just let me tell you straight up. We have the one who said, all authority on heaven and earth has now been given to me. Now you go in my authority. We're not the ones who are scared. The enemy is. It was at the foot of Mount Hermon 
that Jesus declared that his followers would be the church. And after Christ's death, where he had atoned for the sins of all mankind, he commissioned his followers. So note what he's now going to tell his followers. We call this the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if that's the only thing you know about Jesus, if it's the only thing you know about the Bible, that should cause you to sleep sweetly tonight. No, I'm serious. I know you, you, you're roarously clapping on the inside, but seriously, this is good news. He is Lord of all. All authority on heaven, the heavenly realm that comes down on Mount Hermon, that's evil and dark, it's now subject to me. Am I the only one doing a Toyota jump at this point? <laughs> Go, therefore. See, the therefore is, as they say in grammar lessons in English class, therefore is therefore a reason. And the therefore is therefore because Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority has been given to him. We are not the ones who should be nervous about anything the enemy would do to us. The story goes that when Martin Luther got this, he was awoken one night when, story goes, the devil came in at him. He awoke, he turned over, he saw Satan in his bedroom. He said, oh, it's only you and went back to sleep. And that's the confidence every believer should have. Because you belong to Christ. You are his. All authority in heaven, on earth, has been given to you. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's why water baptism is so important. It's one of the reasons why I wanted our baptism, baptismal here, which I'm standing on right now, it's one of the reasons why I want it here, front and centre, because it is a declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ in the life of every person that's baptised, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. I am with you. So from that point, the followers of the risen Christ did exactly as he commanded them. They went and waited. They went to Jerusalem and waited for the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And on the Jewish holy day known as the Feast of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was dramatically outpoured on all of the believers and they were transformed into bold proclaimers of the risen Christ. On the day that the church was birthed, born, 3,000 people repented, were baptised and were added to the church. It's interesting that it corresponds to the day the law was given. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the law and he presented to, them, to the people and they found that they were committing idolatry with the golden calf, it says 3,000 people died. The law brings death. But the Spirit of Christ brings life. 3,000 were saved on that day. Not a random number. And it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe fell upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together 
and had all things in common. This is the birth of the church. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. This is the birth of the church, the followers of Christ. And day by day, attending the, uh, the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. And you'll see that message consistently, consistently through the book of Acts, where it's God who did this. God did this. God moved in their hearts. God used them. God added to the church. The church grew rapidly and soon spread to the furthest reaches of the Roman world, planting churches everywhere they went as Christian communities. We read in Colossians 1, 5 and 6, I thank God, Paul says, that this gospel has now been preached in all the world. And he means the Roman world. In Colossians 1, 23, he says, this gospel has now been preached to every creature under heaven. And the creatures under heaven that he's referring to are Jews who needed to hear of the opportunity to turn to their Messiah. And Paul says, we've done it. We've gone wherever there's a Jewish community and we've shared Christ with them. The early Christians understood Christ's great commission to mean that to be a Christian was to be a member of a local church. So we read this powerful verse in Ephesians 3, 8. It says this, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, I want you to hear the spiritual warfare that's involved here so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. All those, all those demons... All those fallen watchers who are on Mount Hermon, Christ says, they now look at the church and go, we're done for. We are done. We are done. So that whenever the church reaches out with the love and the grace and the message of Christ's forgiveness, it is an assault on the forces of darkness. Do you think that we are doing the Tasmania celebration because it'll be good fun? We are doing it because it is spiritual warfare. And we need the church to arm up and get in the game. That's what we're about. And this is what the church has been about. This was according to, it says here, the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So here's the really good news. Christ's church, well, Christ's Christ, Christ's church that should be, is now God's family. Members of the church are fictive kin, which means the person on your left or the, and the person on your right, they're your family. They are your family. You can't, you, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family, right? You are stuck with me as your brother. Sorry about that, but too bad. We are stuck with each other as brothers and sisters. The church is now the instrument by which God is carrying his message and grace, the grace of redemption to a hurting, lost 
and broken world. As we've heard tonight, the church is now the instrument by which God is carrying his message of grace and redemption to a hurting, lost and broken world. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.